Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. On earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is God's word. Good morning, church. All right, well, th- for those of you that are new here, maybe you've been here for a couple of weeks, we are just kind of starting a journey called Rooted. And the premise of this uh, is that the realization that as human beings, we are not robots, that God sort of wired a certain way, made completely perfect with some programming to do exactly what the programmer made us to do, never without fault. At times, we may need a software upgrade or whatever, but when we expire, we expire. That that's not actually how we are, that the Bible describes life and the life that we have very differently. It describes it kind of in a way that we would really hope would be true, which is that we are living, breathing, dynamic creatures, that we have been made with the desire and potential and capacity and purpose to grow. That we are not all that we are meant yet. Hopefully we can say, well, I'm not who once was. That we are people in process, people who are growing. That, uh, that we are people who are meant to be m- moving. And that like a tree, that we're meant to have roots that make us strong and stable, that we're meant to grow over time, and that in fact, just like a tree bears fruit, that we are meant to be, and just as the the fruit of a tree is a blessing to whoever comes to it, that we are meant to be a blessing to people around us, that our lives are not just for ourselves, but we are meant to grow strong and tall and productive, not just so we can say, look at me, but that we can actually be shade for people, we can be shelter for people, we can provide them fruit that would give nourishment and delight to their lives. That's actually how we were made to be, which is very encouraging because whether you're a person of faith or not, whether you grew up in the church or not, whether you would have used that specific language to describe yourself, we all know, yeah, that's what I want to be. I want to be strong. I want to be stable. I want to grow. I want to move forward. I want to have a life that is not just for me, but blesses other people. And so we're on this journey to say, well, how does that actually happen? What does that look like? And we're taking that journey actually in a a couple of ways. Uh, One, just to mention to you, there's actually two congregations who are taking this journey. So um, some of you may not know this, but we have a sibling, our church, (laughs) that the church that planted us 10 years ago birthed another church uh, two years ago called Connection Rexdale. And so we come from the same parent, and which is interesting is if uh, if we get connected to churches, we have similar visions, even though we operate in different parts of the GTA. And that there's a heartbeat in their church that's very similar to ours. And so one of the things their pastor, Mark, and I have talked about, Mark's been here. He was here on uh, Labor Day weekend preaching while I was at at his church, is what would it look like if we partnered together a little bit? And so we are kind of uh, taking this series to partner together. So we're going to team teach this. So I'm starting this week, and then a couple weeks I'll be at Connection, and Mark will be here, and we'll flip back and forth. And the reason for that is a number of things. One is just that we feel like as churches that have similar visions in a city that we're about 15 minutes apart from each other, are there ways that we can bless each other, 
strengthen each other, help each other. I kind of tend to think that we're a young church, but we got nothing on them. They're a young church. And so every time I meet with them, there's stuff that they're doing or talking about that inspires me and think, we should try that. We should do that. There's a vitality there that comes. And of course, as people who have planted a church, many of you have been here from the beginning, there's stuff that we've learned along the way that they're very excited to learn from as well. Um, and also just we have a desire for this same kind of fruit in each of the lives of our people. And so, um, so our staff has met together once, and, uh, and Mark and I meet kind of regularly to talk. And th- in this series, we're just going to partner together. So it'll be interesting. I also think it's a good thing for you to have multiple voices speaking into your life and not just me because some of you just get so used to my voice that you sleep when I'm speaking. So, oh, yeah, the lights aren't that bright. I can see you. Um, so that's, that's kind of what we're doing in this journey. Now, also, as you're a part of this church, there's a few ways in which you'll be able to enter. And it's one of just Sunday mornings as we talk through what does it mean to be rooted. And today we're kind of going to explore what does it mean to be rooted in, in Christ, to have a faith in Jesus that actually results in our lives becoming like trees. So we're doing that on Sunday mornings. Uh, we also have journals that you can, every one of you can pick up because what we really believe is that y- you need more than an hour on Sunday to breathe in life and then somehow, you know, just sort of survive your week or whatever and think that maybe God isn't really present in my life the other six days and I'm just going to try to get my fix here on Sunday. You can't live like that. You would never eat one meal a week. And the scripture describes life with God as like eating spiritual food. And so we have these journals with you that you can track and there's five readings a week. Um, it take about 20 to 30 minutes a day and just some quotes, some scriptures, some time to give you, some time to reflect. And so you can grab those journals today. So Tony's going to announce that at the end, but make sure you pick one up. Um, and, uh, and then if you're in a home group, the home groups will actually be tracking through the Rooted Journey as well. So if you haven't signed up for one of those, you can. If you are already, your home group leader should have gotten in touch with you, sent you all the readings already. If they haven't, just give them a dirty look right now. Um, so that's, that's kind of what we're doing. As I was thinking about this whole Rooted Journey, I was thinking, well, what, what is it? What, is, what are we actually after in this thing called Rooted? And I, it made me think about uh, the hide-and-seek game that I play with my kids every so often. And uh, hide-and-seek is fun, and it's when you're looking for somebody, you know who it is, right? So you identify who the person that's hiding. And it makes it somewhat easy to find them, especially if you're like my son Gideon, who, who's like can't wait three seconds. He wants you to find him. Um, and so you can, or he's like, you know, hiding behind uh, a pole or something like that. Um, but you might see their hair or their shirt that they were wearing or their shoes underneath the chair or maybe they have the very familiar spots where they always hide in. And so if you know what you're looking for, you can find them quickly. But it made me think of that if you don't lo- know what you're looking for, hide and seek is much harder. Like there are kids who, who come to church here and sometimes they find a peanut M&M underneath their chair and they think, oh, my teacher must have put this here as part of a treasure hunt today. And so they eat it. Don't worry, it only happens once every couple of weeks. But... Um, there's nothing under your chair. We already ate them all this morning. Um, but but if you don't know what you're looking for, sometimes you might mistake something false for the real thing. And they go, this is it. I found it. This is what I wanted. Or you might find you waste time finding things and go, no, that's not it. Looking for, oh, maybe this is, no, it's not. Oh, shiny object, no, that's not it. Or perhaps you might be totally lost. Like if you've ever played the warmer, colder game, and you're colder, 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 and you find out later, man, I was in the other end of the room, the other end of the park. Well, sometimes life can be like that, where we are, in a sense, searching for something, and we don't actually know what it is. There is a longing and a drivenness in us to find something, and many times, if you're like me, we find something that we think is it. Oh, this is amazing, and then realize later, no, that's not it. Sometimes we find something that we think later, I should have run screaming from that and not pick that up and spend time. Sometimes you think, I wasted so much time looking for this stuff. 
Sometimes we can feel lost. Like, I was at the other end of the park. I wasn't even close to what I was looking for. And I would suggest to you that most of life is a driven desire to seek and find, but we don't know what we're looking for. You might say, Vijay, that's a bit presumptuous to say that, you know, we don't know what we're looking for. But let me ask you this. Have you stopped looking? Have you? You've found lots of things in life. I have too. But have you stopped? Have you got to that point where you said, I have everything I need? I, I found it. You haven't. I know you haven't. I haven't either. I've never met anyone who has. The fact that we keep looking, the fact that we keep mistaking things that aren't for the real thing, only later to find that was shiny for a while, but it wore out, tells us I maybe I don't actually know what I'm looking for. I know I'm looking. I have a longing, a desire to find it, but I can't. The two words that in many respects marks our lives is more and next. Whatever I found, I want more of. I, I just need more. That was good, but I need a bit more. Or that was good, but what's next? Some of us, some of you, you're like me, you're fun seekers. Like your whole life is like, well, what's next? What's the next thing I have to look forward to? And all of life around us is built on the premise that you need more or you need next. Which tells us, I'm looking, but I don't know what it is that I'm looking for. I haven't found it. The other clue is that you look at people that have what you want, and they want something else. You look at people that have truckloads of what you are just scraping by to get a little of, and they want more, and you think, what's wrong with you? You have truckloads. Or, how come you don't love that anymore? How could you break up with that girl? Those movie stars, you're going, what? How could you, you have all this money in the world, why do you have to go and do that? Or you have all the attention of all the people in the world, why would you go and do and get that attention? It's easy to criticize people where we see the extremes, but the extremities of it point to a clue in our lives that we actually don't know what it is that we're looking for, and that if we were to get truckloads of it, more of it, have next planned out, we still would want more. The scriptures actually tell us that this desire, this drivenness, to find more, is that we are looking for God. It was G.K. Chesterton, the 20th century art literature critic playwright, who said, every man that knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. His description of the, uh, of the male desire for sexual satisfaction or anybody's desire for sexual satisfaction is just systemic of a greater desire for everything, that underneath everything we are looking for God. People even describe the sexual experience, even people who aren't uh, faith people, as some kind of spiritual euphoria, some kind of otherworldly experience, even for a moment, that could somehow be grasped and taken hold of. It is what we are looking for in sex. It is what we are looking for in possessions, in the acquisition of a nice pair of jeans, or losing a few pounds, or flexing in the mirror. It is beauty that we long to hold and keep and grip and drink in long enough somehow to keep. In our drivenness to be better than we were before. Whether it's even like cheering for our team to win or driving for a company goal or trying to get better in what it is that you do every day, there is a desire to be on the winning side, to not feel like a loser. In this drivenness to have the approval of other people, whether it's our parents, whether it's our siblings, whether it's our neighbors, whether it's our colleagues, whether it's our boss, for somebody to tell us, you're beautiful, you're good, you've made it, to have somehow that feeling of inadequacy, feeling of weakness, feeling of unimportance banished forever. 
Friends, all of these things, in a sense, we desire in godlike quantities. It's never enough. Somebody has said to you in your life, you're good. But was it enough? Even if you've had lots, why do you want more? Why does a lover not just satisfied with one, I love you, and if it changes, I'll let you know? Every day I want to hear it more and more and more because I cannot get enough because I'm a bottomless pit for glory, beauty, the otherworldly experience, for satisfaction, for stability, for a sense of control, and that I'm okay. Think with me for a moment. If we could have found it in this world, it would have been found by somebody. It is an otherworldly thing that we long for. It is, as one person has said, a God-shaped hole. It is God. God is the one you are looking for. Ultimately, behind everything is God. The depth of God, the breadth of God. God is the one supremely otherworldly. He is the one supremely beautiful. How do we know that? Because look at the world he created. It is beautiful top to bottom, from the macro level down to the minuscule microcosmic level, from the heights of the heavens to the depths of the sea. It is beauty front to back. It is not just effective, necessary, practical. We don't just live in a practical world. We live in a beautiful one. He is supremely otherworldly. He is supremely beautiful. He is supremely in control. He is supremely, supremely powerful. He is supremely loved because he pours out his love. He is the one who says to us, I love you. God is the one you are looking for. He is behind everything, every search. And I'm not just talking for those of you that, you know, have been in the church and say, yes, yes, we're supposed to love God. No, underneath everything else that drives our lives, because it doesn't matter whether you call yourself a God follower, a Jesus follower, a Christian or not, every one of us has this drive for more and next. And on Sundays we pause, on days we pause and reflect, wait, why do I want that so much? Underneath there is something I'm trying to get at that actually nothing in this world could get me. It is God I want, nothing less. But you know, the greatest twist of this whole journey, this search that is inescapable, that none of us can get away from, is that the one you are looking for is looking for you. The story of our lives is not simply that we are pursuing purpose, beauty, love, meaning, ultimate reality, but that purpose, beauty, meaning, love, ultimate reality has pursued us and is pursuing us even now. That the one we are looking for is actually looking for us. It's in a sense the hunter is being hunted. The one out seeking is being sought, pursued, run after, even as we are running after all of these things. That God is the one, and it's not sufficient to say he's just seeking us as if he doesn't know where we are. He is pursuing us. He knows exactly where we are. As we are wandering around life looking for something we can't explain, he is locked in on us, pursuing us. This is the story of your life. And many of us are unaware that that's happening right behind us. Right behind me, as I am looking out there, is the one who is coming after me. There are moments when we glimpse it. And yet the scriptures tell us this has happened. Well, how do we know this? Sounds nice, VJ. How do we know this? Because of Jesus. The scripture that we just read, it was read for us by Brian in Colossians, says this about Jesus, that he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus 
is the visible image of the invisible God. The one who is coming after us, the one that many people would say, well, you can't really know. You, who can really know about God? Yes, God is transcendent, completely up there in one sense, completely above, non-material. But to say we cannot know him is to deny what, deny what Colossians says. Is actually, no, we can because in Jesus we see God. That he is the image of the invisible God. And it says, for God was pleased. It's one of those passages where you read it, and if you're familiar with it, you read it, all the words start to jumble together. And who's the he, you know? Too many uh, definite articles without the name coming back. Who's he? He was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Who's that? God was pleased to put all of God's fullness in Jesus so that when we encounter Jesus, we encounter the one we are looking for. And we realize that the one we are looking for has been looking for us because God sent Jesus to us. God did not remain, in a sense, hidden in mystery, shrouded in questions up there somewhere, but that he came to us in Jesus in all of his fullness in this one we call Jesus. Now, I know for some of you, or maybe some of the people that you hang with, they'll say, okay, that's, this is my stop. This is where I get off the bus. <laughs> I, okay, God, or whatever you want to call it, transcendent, superpower, somewhere up there. But the fact that Jesus is God, that we can't actually end the conversation by saying, well, who can really know? No, we can know because God sent Jesus to us. That's how we know. Before Jesus, no, we couldn't really know. Maybe a few people said they had these spiritual experiences with God, but who could really know? And Paul writes to the church in Colossians and says, Jesus is the images, image of the invisible God. If you want to know God, you see Jesus. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Some of you I know, or some people you know say, that's it. I'm off this bus. Now, this, I don't have a ton of time to address that concern, but let me just say this for a moment. First of all, I have to remember who is writing this letter. It was the Apostle Paul. Or, you know, we, we call him Saint. You know, Saint Paul, as if there's such a thing as a saint. Saint Paul wrote this, but he, before he was Paul, he was Saul. And when he was Saul, he was Jihadi John. And I'm not being humorous. It, was, it would be as if, imagine this, the guy who's been on YouTube, publicly killing people, beheading them, a month from now would be on YouTube with his mask off, in tears, telling you, I was wrong, Jesus is Lord. It tells us in the book of Acts that Paul, before he was Paul, was Saul. And the NIV dumbs down, in one sense, if I can say that, the translation of what it says Paul was doing to the church. He was against Christians because this guy was a devout Jew. And what that meant was, the, the thing that the Jews would recite over and over was, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. They believed God was so transcendent, so far above, so powerful, so to be revered as he is, that the idea that he could somehow become a man was total blasphemy. It was why Jesus was killed, because he claimed to be God. And so Paul, as a, Saul, as a zealous Jew, was nobody can claim that. That's not right. In, in other words, Paul had a purest mission, just as we say ISIS has a purest mission that is to eradicate anything that is not pure, in their minds, Islam. Paul had that mission for the Jews. He wasn't representing all Jews, but this is what he believed in his heart was his mission. Was, and so it said he, he breathed out murderous threats. They combined two ideas in there. It says Paul was breathing out murder and threats. He was murdering people and threatening to murder them. So he was imprisoning women and children and killing the dads. It's exactly what ISIS is doing right now. This man was against 
all Christians, and he was truthfully killing them. Now he is here, writing to the Colossian church, saying the one thing that angered him to the most that would make him kill other people, and telling them he didn't know it was going to go all over the known world for the next 2,000 years, what he wrote in that letter. But he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. If there was ever a hostile witness, it is Paul. It's why later on he says, I'm the chief of sinners. We think he was being a bit, I don't know how much he was overcome with grief for all of the murder and chaos that he had caused. But at one point he says, I'm the chief of sinners, and if God can forgive me, he can forgive anyone. He had made his life mission to kill people who believed that Jesus was God, and a little while later, in his lifetime, and he would have lived during the life of Jesus. He would have been around. He didn't see Jesus when he walked the earth, but he knew who he was and he knew what people were saying about him. But something happened in the life of Paul that made him go from being jihadi John to St. Paul, who would write this and say, the thing that I was killing people for, I now profess and am willing to die for. And eventually he himself was killed for it. That he is God. Paul had an encounter with Jesus there. He saw, he had a vision of the Lord, and he said, who are you, Lord? And the vision said, I am Jesus. And so he saw Jesus and Lord together for the first time, and it changed his life. That's what changed him. No one talked him out of it. No one could have. He was killing the people who were trying to talk him out of it. He had a vision of Jesus that changed him. And so in history, you have to argue with the fact and say, how did this man become that man if Jesus is not Lord? Not only that, if you look at the people who actually were like Paul and the eyewitnesses and who are writing these letters and talking about that Jesus was Lord, it was not the masses way out there that somehow had con- been convinced by this great charismatic orator named Jesus that many of us like to think oh, that's what he was. He was a good man and he was a good speaker. And so he convinced a bunch of people to believe that he was God, just like David Koresh or whoever convinced a bunch of people that they were God. Who are the least likely people to, convinced, to be convinced that someone is God? Like, if I, if I started claiming to be God, okay, nobody would believe me. But I'm just saying, if I did, Jen would be the least likely person to believe it. No, no, I, no, I know. Like, yeah, he's a nice guy sometimes. She knows me the closest. My mother, you know, as nice as she is, probably if you pressed her would say, no, he's not God. The people close to you, and yet the eyewitnesses to Jesus, the ones who said the most, his brother James who died for it, his mother who was there in the room, his closest companions, the ones who had been the closest to him were the ones that were willing to die for the fact that he was Lord. So anybody in here and anybody you know that's read a Time Magazine article or their dad said Jesus wasn't Lord, sorry, you need to give it a bit more thought than that because something happened in history that I'm not saying it convinces you of everything, but you cannot explain where we are today if something miraculous didn't happen back then 2,000 years ago. So that's my long aside, okay? What did Jesus tell us about God? If, if in Jesus we see God, what do we see of God? That Jesus, when he's talking with a woman at the well who had been divorced many times and was longing for love, he said, if you're looking for love, if you're looking for satisfaction, if you're looking for stability, if you're looking for security, if you're looking for someone to say, you are beautiful and I'll love you forever, it's me. Anyone who comes to me, he says, will never have that kind of thirst again. He said to Peter, who was a fisherman, who he filled his nets with, basically gave the guy a life's fortune and said, you think that's good? You know what? True fulfillment in life is not success beyond success in your career that everyone would look at you and think you're so amazing. True success in life is following me, so follow me. I'll show you better than that. He said to the paralytic who came to him, 
needing to be healed. He said, I'll heal you, but first let me heal your, forgive your sins, because the bigger wound you have is the one in your heart, not what's wrong with your body. You're looking for health, strength, life. It's found in me. You're looking for a home, a mansion. He says to his disciples who were nomads who had given up everything for him, don't worry, I'm preparing a place for you. You're going to get it someday. Just trust me. In other words, he was telling everyone, everything you are looking for is found in me. It's life in me. Whatever you are searching and peeling back the layers of, of striving for, he said to them, don't strive. Life is a heavy burden to bear. Come to me. My burden is lighter. Live with me, follow me, trust in me, learn from me, love me. The things you are really wanting in life are found in me. And by the way, if he wasn't Lord, it doesn't make him a good person at all to say that stuff. He's either a crazy man or a liar, or he was who he said he was. This business about Jesus being a good man from whom we can learn from but not God doesn't, doesn't wash. No good man would say that unless he was telling the truth. Unless he was truly saying, worship me, love me, in me you will find all that you desire, all that you hope for. This is the faith of what it means to know who God is. To somehow say that somehow in life, if I want to be the one that I say I want to be, strong, vibrant, thriving, bearing fruit, I somehow have to get closer to you. I somehow have to get to know more of you. I somehow need to learn more of you. I need to love you. I need to take you into the center of my life and grow from there. Who is God? God is the one we are looking for that is looking for you revealed in Jesus. Now, this is very unique in the worldviews that we have around us and for years ago. In the world that the Apostle Paul was writing in the Greek world and the Greek mythology of gods, they believed in gods that came into the world, but they remained as gods. And all of the stories of the Greek gods, essentially people were collateral damage in those stories. The, the Greek gods did not come into the world to love people. They came into the world to take it over, and human beings became the props on the stage of their epic battles. There's no worldview like that. The Greeks had a worldview of gods coming into the world, but they never came as close like Jesus came. We live in a New Age worldview that's sort of a patchwork, a bunch of theologies put together and different beliefs, and people say, well, yeah, God is everywhere. God is, if he is up there, he's maybe a greater power, or he's some kind of life force, or if he's here, he's also in the trees, and he's a babbling brook, and maybe he's my yoga mat, too, that I'm on. And so, yes, God is everywhere, but he's not relational. He's not close. He's just everywhere, everything. And there are some who believe, yes, there must be some higher power up there, and he kind of set the world in motion, but he's a little bit outside of it, and so we're kind of trying to do our thing. If we're really desperate, we might talk to him. We try to be good people, because that's probably what he would want, but he's far enough away that I don't have to deal with him. In the, in the person of Jesus, we find something so unique that you will not find in any other worldview. That God, so transcendent, so above, creator, put all of the world in motion, has come into our world and come so close that it's not just unique, it's terrifying. Because to think that God is out there may give me some comfort and I can pray and if I really need it, but to think that he actually comes close to me, that he is the one pursuing me, is quite frankly terrifying because wh what does he want from me? You know, it's like the knock at the door or the email from Revenue Canada. Why are they calling me? You know, that we have this thing, it's like, oh, no, no, what are they going to want? And sure enough, Jesus comes and he makes demands on us. 
He comes close enough that we cannot be as we were before we encountered him. And this is what you will find in the narrative of Scripture all the time. Whenever God, the glorious one, came close in Jesus, everyone around started to react. It was like a chemical reaction that was unavoidable. And either people ran away from him or they moved closer to him. Because it was terrifying, because he made demands on them. Why? Not because he needed something from them, but he wanted something for them. And when God comes close to us, yes, on one level it's comforting to think that God is there, but when God is right here, it's terrifying. So why should you pursue him back? Why should you not turn and run away from this one who comes close to you, so glorious God, and thinking, wait, what's going to happen to my life? And every one of us has had that experience in some shape or form. Even if you said, yes, I follow Jesus, there are times when you realize Jesus wants something for me, and it's terrifying me. Why should I pursue him back? Why should I lean in? Why should you go on this rooted journey to find out more about this one that is pursuing you? Let me just read you a story. A rabbi and his young disciple sat side by side under the shade of a large oak tree. Help me, rabbi, said the disciple. I'm a double-minded man. The law of the Lord tells me the Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. But oh, how I want. The law of the Lord tells me that my soul finds rest in God alone, but oh, how my soul finds rest in everything else. My son, said the rabbi, listen to the story I'm about to tell you. Long ago, a skylark flew above the parched and desolate ground of the desert. Times were hard for all living things, and worms were not easy to come by for a creature of the air. One day, the skylark heard an unfamiliar voice. It was the voice of a traveling peddler, and the skylark could not believe what the peddler seemed to be selling. Worms, worms, mouth-watering worms, cried the peddler. Come right up and get your delicious worms today. Incredulous at this sudden good fortune, the skylark hopped closer to the peddler, drawing nearer to this manna from heaven. Worms today, two worms for one feather, said the peddler. At the mention of worms, the skylark felt a pang of hunger, and suddenly he understood. Oh, my feathers are many, thought the skylark, imagining the taste of the worms in his beak. Surely I'll not miss just two small feathers. So unable to resist any longer, the skylark plucked two of his smallest feathers and surrendered them to the peddler, who, unbeknownst to the skylark, was the unholy one in disguise. As promised, the skylark had his choice of the fattest, juiciest worms he had ever seen, and all without needing to dig or claw in the unyielding ground. So the skylark took hold of four glistening worms and swallowed them. Such small sacrifice, yet such great reward, the skylark told himself. Two small feathers is of no concern to me. With his stomach full, the skylark stepped from his high perch and began to soar. The next day, the skylark swooped and sang until he met the nefarious peddler once again. Just as before, the peddler offered two worms for one feather. So the skylark feasted on the luscious worms until he had his fill. And so it went day after day. Times were still hard for all living things, and worms were still not easy to come by for creatures of the air. One day, after finishing the worms, the skylark attempted to take flight. Instead of soaring, he plummeted to the ground with a thud. Stunned but grateful to be alive, the skylark realized he had no more feathers. Of course, he could no longer fly. Once the skylark realized he had given up his feathers and could not fly, he came to his senses, said the rabbi. Desperate, he hopped and stumbled through the desert, gathering worms. A small one here, a small one there. After several days of striving and toil, he had a small pile of worms and returned to the peddler. Here are enough worms to exchange for my feathers. I need them back. The devil, however, just laughed and said, you can't get your feathers back. You got your worms and I've got your feathers and after all, a deal is a deal. 
and with that he disappeared into thin air. As the rabbi finished speaking, the young apprentice noticed a tear running down his teacher's cheek. Rabbi, why the tear? The disciple asked. Because the heart of God breaks when we give away our feathers for worms, the rabbi answered. But even more, his heart breaks when we try to buy our feathers back, for only God can restore our feathers. You and I, in the search for God and nothing less, in many ways, big and small, have to give away pieces of ourselves to get it. And there may be times, and have been times, certainly in my life, where I think, what I gave away was not worth it. What I gave away now I regret giving because what I thought I had found was not what I needed at all. And as I read this verse in Colossians today, or this week, it says two things that I think are so beautiful to us who maybe are in that place where we have given away pieces of ourselves in looking for something we don't know what and finding not enough. It says two things. It said that Jesus, in Jesus, all things are held together and that he is the one reconciling us to God. Do you know what this means? The word reconciling just means bringing us back. It means that Jesus is the one putting us back together and holding us together. You get that? It's probably my favorite verse in all scripture, that in him all things hold together. Because, you know that song we sing here, Without You I Fall Apart? It's true. That as I have given away the pieces of myself, trying to find the thing that I cannot really find because I didn't really know what I was looking for, and then I suddenly realize that the one I'm looking for has actually pursued me, and that he doesn't need anything from me, but he wants something for me, that he is the one, slowly, bit by bit, who is able to put back the pieces of my life that I have given away. And he is the one that holds me together, even when it feels like everything else is pulling me apart. He's the one thing in life that I serve that I don't have to give anything to because he needs nothing from me. And it cannot be said about everything else in life. He is the one. And that's why you should not be terrified so much as to run away. That's why you should pursue him. That's why you should move closer to him because he is the one able to put you back together, the pieces of your life. He is the one able to hold you together when it seems like you're coming apart. That's why as terrifying as it is that God comes close, we lean in. As terrifying as it is to think that he is pursuing me, I pursue him back. Because I don't know about you, but I need that. I need the pieces of my life put together. I need to be held together. And so, here's my little next step for you. The next time that you are planning or striving or longing or blocked from getting something, ask yourself this question, what am I looking for here? Because our greatest Danger in life is that we don't stop long enough to think, wait a second, what is it that I'm trying to get at in this? I want this thing, and I can't get it. Why is it frustrating me so much? And the answer can't be because I can't get it. Why do I need this? I lose something, and I'm longing for it back. And something in me cannot find joy in anything else, and I need to ask myself why. What was I looking for in that thing? I feel like a failure today because of something that happened yesterday. And I have to ask myself, why is my heart so downcast? What is that thing that I failed at? 
Why do I need so much to be successful at it? When I look in the mirror and I'm disappointed or I'm delighted, what is it that I am so delighted or disappointed about? And why is it that I need that? Friends, this is a question all of us can begin to ask, to peel back to layers, to realize, it is you, God, I want and nothing else. It is a beauty that never fades. It is an otherworldly experience that isn't gone in a few moments. It is a sense of stability and being held and loved and approved of that never goes away because of my next failure or my next lack of accomplishment or because someone else has come and eclipsed what I've done. It is you I want and nothing else. This question will lead you to him as we begin to peel back the layers on it. Tony's going to lead us to the communion table now as we, as we partake. And I was just encouraged to think this, that and you've heard us say this many times before, but it bears repetition every time we take this communion, the, the Lord's table. That we who come to the table are not the ones who have something to offer. We come empty-handed. He is the one broken, given away, so that we can be put back together. And so you don't need to come here having been approved of yourself and feeling holy enough or worthy enough or good enough to come to this table. But this is the table that you come to say, I don't have it all together. The, the, the church is really what defines us as we are just the ones who are willing enough to admit we're sinners and that we need whatever it is that he had. And to know you come empty and leave full. That as real as the bread and the cup is in your mouth, that is as real as what Jesus is for you. And so as Tony leads us, just... Um, just remember that that's who's inviting us, the one who holds us together and has promised to put us back together.